Let's pray. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you for the days in which we live. We thank you for the excitement of the things that are occurring in the world and in us as Christians. Father, we thank you that in the world we are seeing your plan coming to completion. We thank you for the excitement, Father, that we feel when we see nations in perplexity and we see them unable to find solutions. We know that the tree is indeed putting forth its leaves and that summer is very near. And Father, it's with great rejoicing this morning that we remember that Jesus Christ is coming again. Oh, Father, we thank you for that wonderful, glorious day when we shall see him face to face. And Father, many of us believe it will be in our lifetime. Oh, Father, thank you for the excitement. And today, Father, we pray for your people Israel, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we do lift them high to you, Lord. We ask you, Lord, to really protect that nation. And Father, we also pray for the Arab nations around, that many should be saved in them, Lord. We pray for Egypt, Lord. Father, we really ask you to support Egypt. We pray for a, a miracle, Lord, to occur in those Arab lands, that we should see the re-establishment of the church in those nations. But Father, what you're doing there, you're also doing in the church. And Father, we're seeing a gathering again of the people, hallelujah, who are coming and they're experiencing the desert blossoming as the rose. And we're coming again into our inheritance. Father, we thank you for this wonderful news that your spirit is moving and renewing and, and rejuvenating, as it were, the church of Jesus Christ. And we're seeing before our very eyes the body of Christ coming together in power and authority and in joy and peace. Father, we are asking in the name of Jesus that as we study these things this morning, that you will just bless us by your spirit, Lord that your Holy Spirit will excite us and illuminate our hearts, and that, Father, the things that we study should indeed cause us to be changed individuals with the new creature coming through. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for the new creation that we are, and we pray that even through the manifestation of Jesus in our midst, that, Father, the world should see Jesus is alive today. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. Thank you, dear Lord. Amen. Amen. A few sessions ago, we started talking about what were the main aims of a fellowship. And do you remember I actually listed six main aims? And I think the order of the aims surprised quite a number of people because they were expecting the top aim to be either to get people filled with the Spirit or the top aim to be preach the gospel. And in fact, we saw that the top aim wasn't that at all, that the top aim was that we should show our love to the Lord. And do you remember we also saw one that was associated with it, that another aim of a fellowship is that we should produce holy and stable and mature Christians. Now I want to write those up so that we get them clear. The first aim is to show, the first aim for fellowship is to show its love for the Lord. And that is paramount above everything. And the second aim is to produce mature, holy, and stable Christians. There is absolutely no glory for God in a group of people that consists of unstable people, immature people who are still dominated by the little difficulties that come along uh, in everyday life. 
People of the world look and see some Christians who are unstable and they think, well, Jesus Christ has made no difference in their lives whatsoever. And so these two priorities have got to show in every fellowship group. By the way, if these two dominate, then all the others will come automatically. If a fellowship loves the Lord with all its heart and shows its love for the Lord, and if it is working to produce holy, stable, mature Christians, then I'll tell you, the needs in the fellowship will get looked after automatically. The gospel will be preached automatically. The world will receive a testimony automatically. But these have got to come first. If any of the other aims come first, we're in danger of going wrong. For we become preoccupied with the work of the Lord rather than the person of the Lord. And so many Christians have lost the power in their lives and so many fellowships have lost, lost the power because they've become preoccupied with other things. They're very good at evangelism. They're very good at preaching the word. They're very good at doing this and doing that. But they forget Jesus Christ in the midst. And I've ministered before, I know from Revelation 2, about the church of Ephesus. And you remember how God, Jesus Christ says, you're very good, you've had patience, you've labored, you've worked very hard, but I've got this thing against you. You've lost your first love. I came into your midst, you didn't love me. You were so preoccupied with my work that that had gone. This is a major danger in the body of Christ, and especially as we see the Spirit begin to move. There's a terrible danger to want to help him, you know, and, and to come alongside the Holy Spirit, and, okay, God, you leave this one for me, and, and that type of attitude. And as soon as you get onto that, you're heading on the path down, because sooner or later, the Holy Spirit will be pushed out. And that's why we as a fellowship, we worship the Lord with all of our hearts. That's why when you come into the midst, you'll see singing and dancing and praise. And you might think it's rather strange. It's not strange at all. We're giving God his first portion. When that portion is right, everything else comes right. Incidentally, there's a lovely document which was written over 300 years ago by that lovely group of uh, people called the Puritans. There have never been such a remarkable group of people like the Puritans. And can I say this? I'm hoping that in England we're going to see a group of people even more remarkable than the Puritans. They were excellent in everything they touched. They were brilliant people and they were devoted to God. It says about them that they bowed the knee to God and they put their foot on the necks of kings. There we are. In other words, they wouldn't have any interference uh, with God's divine institutions in the land. Well, they wrote a little document which is called the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I was rather interested the other day to read what they thought was the main aim of Christianity. And of course, they got it absolutely right, as you would expect. They say this, the chief end of man, which is their way of saying the main aim of man, is this. And it gives two. One, to glorify the Lord. And two, and I love this one, and to enjoy him forever. Aren't they lovely? The main end of man is not to be busy, busy, busy with the things of God. The main aim is one, to glorify him. And that means 100% commitment to God every single second of your life. To glorify him and secondly, to enjoy him forever. And do you remember last week, we saw ways in which we show our love to the Lord, you know? We smile sometimes, most times. We clap our hands. We laugh in the spirit. 
we dance, we sing, we shout at the top of our voices as the Lord should lead us. This is not being irreverent, you know, to God. Absolutely not. This is pleasing his father's heart. And when he looks down, he says, this is a group of people who really love me. And so we saw the ways in which we can love the Lord. But I said last time that these two, number one and two, were actually related. That when we show our love to the Lord, it is actually producing stability and holiness and maturity in each one of us. And today, I want to show you how praise and thanksgiving are used by God to produce maturity within the hearts of believers. I expect you experienced, as I did when I was saved, how wonderful the Lord was. For seven weeks, I lived on cloud number seven. You know, I was up in those heavenlies. Every problem was just like a little molehill that I just jumped over. There's no problem at all. I praise God with all my heart. I knew the presence of the Lord. I felt his arms around me every time I prayed. And then the morning came when there was absolutely nothing. I woke up and I was expecting to receive the same feelings that I've received before. And it was, they weren't there. And I said to, to the Lord, Lord, you've left me. You've gone. This is, I knew it was too good to be true. You know, this is the type of negativism that was there. And actually, it was only through mature Christians around that I learned what God was doing. That he was taking me away from the realm of feelings onto the realm of faith. So that from that time on, I will praise him and love him, knowing him is there, not because he's going to put a hand on my shoulder or anything like that. And in fellowship groups, you know, we often find ourselves in the same uh, situation of tension. At first, when the fellowship forms, oh, it's wonderful. The praise is fantastic. You've never seen such praise as this before. And you enjoy it with all your heart. There's singing and there's dancing. But after a period of time, all of a sudden, the meetings start getting a bit difficult. The praise doesn't seem to flow in the way that it did before. And the organist and the pianist try and jump it up on the piano, but it doesn't come, you know. And when the, the choruses are finished, there's a total silence, and everyone's sitting there saying, well, what do we do now? And a tension situation is produced. Now, it's, God is directing that. As he directs that type of situation, he is beginning the job of maturing and stabilizing that particular fellowship. Now, what do you do when you reach a situation in a fellowship like that, you know, where all of a sudden a meeting, for some reason or other, just hasn't, as we say, taken off, you know? What do you do? Well, the answer is found in the Bible, and let's turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, and chapter 13... And I'm going to read verse 15 and verse 16. Because, you see, it's at that point of tension that the future of a fellowship will be decided. Now, I'm going to read verse 15 and verse 16, where we have mention of three sacrifices. Two of them don't concern us today, but I'll mention them in passing, and one does. Verse 15. By him, therefore, that's by Jesus... Let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And then verse 16, but to do good and to communicate 
forget not, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And you have there three sac sacrifices. One, the sacrifice of praise. One, the sac sacrifice of doing good. And the third one, the sacrifice of communicating. Now let's take the last two first, shall we? The, the sacrifice of doing good and the sacrifice of communicating. The sacrifice of doing good shows us this, that in the Christian life it's not always easy to do good. Most of us are very, very busy. Most of us uh, actually have enough on our plate already, let alone trying to help other people. And what this is saying is that God wants you to do good to one another, and it's going to cost you something to do it. And the second one there, uh, the as it says in the King James, to communicate, it makes it sound as if you've got to talk to one another. And the picture in, from the King James is you all sit there, not talking to anyone, you know, don't forget to say hello or something. It doesn't mean that. Do you know the word um, communicate in the Greek is our old friend koinonia. And do you remember we dealt with that in the very first study? And it means to share everything in one's life. And he says, don't forget to do these things. They're going to be costly, but don't forget to do them. And the idea is here that, of course, one tends to want to just dwell in one's own house. You have one's own family, you have the little things you do in your own house, and soon that takes you up entirely. Here it says, no, you've got to make sure you're prepared to make a sacrifice, both to do good around and to share your life. But look at verse 15. We're told here that there will be times when we have to make a sacrifice of praise. And that means that the praise actually costs us something to do it. You know, some meetings you sit there and it's just wonderful. Praise is easy. You can dance for joy. You're feeling really thrilled. There are other times when that is not your experience. What do you do? You then have to make a sacrifice of praise. And that means it has to cost you something. I'm sure we've all experienced this uh, type of thing, haven't we? You know, where you know God wants you to praise. Everything within you, your old nature is saying, don't praise. No, 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 don't praise. Praise yourself. You're feeling a bit tired. You're feeling a bit out tonight. It hasn't been an easy day. So you go along then. If you're feeling better later on, then you'll stand up and give him a, you know, a bit of praise. No. This says, oh, it doesn't matter what you feel like. You come along, and despite everything you are feeling, you are going to open your mouth and you're going to praise God for who he is. I have found it to be a rule, and Ross will support me in this, that it's always when I'm most tempted to miss a meeting that it's the very meeting I ought to go to. I've generally found that. Have you found that to be the case? And it's always the next day, if you've missed it, that someone says, oh, what a fantastic meeting it was last night. And you think, boy, I always miss the fantastic meetings. <laughs> and Ros and I have a rule, and that is this, that when we are feeling tired, we will definitely get to every meeting we can. That's a rule. We generally found if we miss a meeting when we're tired, we're tired for the rest of the week. But if we go to that meeting, we're not tired at all by the next day. God has blessed us because he, it has been a tensional situation, a testing situation, and we've come through it. You see, this is a matter of sacrificing to God, and it means it will cost you something. The idea of a sacrifice of praise is an Old Testament one. And by the way, there's a lovely uh, use of it in the book of Hosea. 
Could we turn to the book of Hosea in the Old Testament, which is just after the book of Daniel. <clears throat> All right, just after the book of Daniel. And in this particular chapter, Hosea 14, Israel's out of fellowship. They've gone away from God. They're not serving God. They're enjoying the foreign gods now. But don't mistake this one thing. They're still giving up sacrifices to God. They're still taking their calves and their lambs and their rams and things. They're still going down to the holy place and sacrificing these things. But it's all ritual. It has no reality behind it, but they're continuing to do it. And Hosea warns them that they're out of fellowship. And, and you know God himself said, I hate your feasts. He says it in Hosea. I hate and despise your feasts. You know, I didn't ask for sacrifice. I want obedience. That's what I'm looking for. Obedience is better than sacrifice, is what he says in Samuel. And so here's Hosea's words. Verse 1, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. Take with you words. They were taking lambs. They were taking rams, but they weren't taking any words to God. They were handing them over to the priest saying, well, let's get this over, and then we'll get back to the foreign gods that we like to worship. He says, take with you words and turn to the Lord. Say unto him, take away all iniquity. The word take away is a Hebrew word for to lift off, as if the iniquity is a heavy burden that you, they can't stand. God, take away this heavy burden and receive us graciously. And look what it says. So we will render the calves of our lips. So we will come into your presence with our thanksgiving and our praise, which costs us more than the costly bulls and calves that we have been given to, to you formerly. So we're coming now with our praises. This is a sacrifice of praise. Now, if in a fellowship situation you reach this point of tension, there are two paths that you can go. You either learn to give a sacrifice of praise or you turn to religion. It's either one or the other. And I warn you that Satan's word to the church and to fellowships today is, let the work cease. He doesn't want us to thrive. And the major weapon that he can use against us is religion. And so what do you get? Well, to praise the Lord like we do costs you something. So we won't praise the Lord like we do. What we'll do is just stand and we'll sing these choruses just twice or three times through. You know, it doesn't really cost anything. Just raise your voice a bit. Your mind can be elsewhere. And that's it. So you sing, I will praise thee, O Lord, with my whole heart, twice through, and then you sit down, you know? And that's it. It has cost the believer nothing. You can be out of fellowship and you can sing songs like that. And you'll find Satan has moved into the church in exactly this way. So that today, much of what is called praise in the body of Christ is sterile. It has no life in it at all. The people are just mouthing it with their lips. And they open their hymn books and blah, blah, thou art great and greatly to be praised. It doesn't affect their heart at all. It's not coming from their hearts, it's coming from their lips, you see? Now that is turning to religion, and I'll tell you, I've been shocked. I've actually been to some fellowships that are simply souped-up Baptist churches, you know? They simply sing the choruses a bit louder than they used to sing them before, and that's it. 
but they don't know what it is to be abandoned in this love to enjoy him forever they've forgotten all that it's too costly to do that and so they zip through into a nice religious way I heard a man I think it was David Duplessis some years ago he was talking about Gregorian chants have you heard Gregorian chants in the Roman Catholic Church he said that there's quite a lot of evidence to show that they were singing in tongues you know that people were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to sing in tongues but after a while of course religion crept in they didn't want to be filled with the Spirit then so then they wrote down the singing in tongues you know and now they sing the same old songs you know and they're very beautiful but honestly God must say oh not that again <laughs> you know he's so wonderful as a composer he's got millions of songs so why are you concentrating on that one again what's happened they have become religious religion now has taken over they do things that way because they've always done them that way and I'll tell you this fellowships can become as religious as anyone else so you get fellowships now who sing all the choruses because they always sing the choruses that way but if your heart's not in it and if it's not costing you something at times I wonder whether really you are going along the right path God says, let us offer up to him continually a sacrifice of praise. And that's why in prophecies you hear so often, doesn't matter how you're feeling, praise me anyway. And some people say, but it does matter how I'm feeling. <laughs> if you're centered on yourself, it does. But if you're centered on him, it doesn't. He's always the same and always worthy to be praised. Do you see? So God, it is essential that we see there will be times when we'll have to praise anyway. Oh, it's not only me, I know, who sometimes leaves our meetings exhausted. Have you ever had that experience? You get home from a meeting and you think, I'm whacked. It's really, wow, it was a super meeting, but I am tired. What's it been? It's been a sacrificial meeting. You've had to pour yourself out. And why not, by the way? Isn't our God great enough to ask for sacrifices from you? Or, or are you really coming along to a fellowship group just for what you can receive? Well, I, th I thought I'd feel better after the meeting. Now I feel tired. But God feels better, praise God, you see. God has received the praise, and that's what the essence is. And we've got to understand this. I always remember the time that I had a certain couple who will remain nameless living with me, and God tested me over this sacrifice of praise. The man in the house had done something that I felt had let me down and offended me. So I thought, well, I'm not going to speak to him. You see, I don't often do this type of thing, but it so happened that night that that was what I was going to do. I spoke to his wife, but I wouldn't speak to him, and the meal was most odd, you know. I had a full conversation with this woman, and every time he made a remark, I sort of cut it dead, you know. I wanted him to know that, quite honestly, I felt, felt he'd let me down, and I didn't feel it was the way a Christian should act. It was something so trivial, you wouldn't believe it, you know. And then it was time for the meeting. So I went off to the meeting, and frankly, I felt out, you know. This had got under my skin. Now I'd been put out, and quite honestly, I felt he shouldn't have acted like this. And isn't it funny, we always let God have it in the neck when we're out with someone. And so, a few years ago, I went along to a Tuesday night meeting, and some of you may remember that evening, it's the only evening where I have voluntarily sat on the second row back. And I sat on the back, the back row, or the second row back, and honestly, I wanted everyone to know I was out of fellowship. And I sat there, you know, and people said hello, and instead of my saying, oh, hello, and being jolly, 
I said, hello, and I sat down. And soon people were saying, what's, what's the matter with Raj? You know? And I sat there, and the first three choruses went past, and I just sat there like this. And then God said to me, all right. <laughs> I was expecting him to be all sort of sympathetic to me. <laughs> oh, Roger, come on. <laughs> oh, please, just a little smile. <laughs> no. He said, all right, he said. You're my servant, aren't you? Yes, Lord. You're going to stand up. You're going to praise me like you've never praised me before. You're going to shout at the top of your voice. You're going to dance. You're going to clap your hands. And everyone, you're going to make a fool of yourself in front of this congregation. <laughs> and suddenly I knew this was the tensional point. I now had to decide, was I going to be obedient to the Lord or was I going to be self-occupied and self-seeking? Which was it? And I'm glad to tell you, I got up and I danced like mad for an hour and a half. I danced every single number. <laughs> and I left that meeting and I was furious. <laughs> and I sat in the car and I drove home, you know, and I was really out. You know, this is forced obedience, as it were. And when I got home, I sat in my study in the total darkness and I was fuming. The worst thing was, the chap hadn't realised he'd upset me. <laughs> that was the worst thing of all. And then, after about a quarter of an hour, there was a knock at the door, and this head came round and said, have I done something wrong, Raj? <laughs> and suddenly I started to laugh, you know. I saw how futile, how stupid it was. And I suddenly realised that it had been a major evening of achievement for God. For he was bringing this heart of mine, which was self-willed and determined to go its own way, he was putting reins on it and he was bringing it under his control. And I'll tell you this, I have learnt that with a controlled heart, we come into stability and maturity. All right, praise then is used to produce this maturity, although it costs us something. But I'll tell you something else, thanksgiving also is used. And to see that, turn to 1 Thessalonians and chapter 5, 1 Thessalonians, and chapter 5, and you know the verse I'm going to. Oh, verse 16, 17, and 18. All right, now look what it says. Verse 6, rejoice evermore. Evermore means forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And you have eternal life and you're going to. But it also means now, today, the rest of today. Rejoice forevermore. 17, pray without ceasing. And you know that means like a hacking cough in the Greek. I think I've been over that before. In other words, pray as the Lord lays it upon you. And that might be 50 times an hour. It could be three times an hour. But just pray whenever you feel you should pray. Verse 18 is the verse. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Now, can I say at the outset that this is a verse that has been very cheapened? Because there are some people around who have learnt a little technique, as they feel. And they're using this technique to twist God's arm. You know, they prayed about a certain matter and nothing's happened. Um, perhaps it isn't God's will to do it. But they won't accept that. They, they know what God's will is, and they want God's will, you see, even though it's not God's will in that situation. They pray, nothing happens. They ask a group to pray, and nothing happens. And then they hear some people saying, oh, have you tried praising in every, every situation? 
giving thanks in every situation. It works. And they give out certain books, which are lovely books, by the way, by Melvin Carruthers, Power in Praise and all the others. And these tell of how God has blessed people who've praised. So they then take it as a little technique. And now prayer hasn't worked, but this is going to work. So they start giving thanks in everything, you know. But really, it's evil. And I'll tell you why. Because in their hearts, they're not doing it because it's God's will. They're doing it to get their own, what they want to achieve, you see. Actually, the people mentioned in Melvin Carruthers' books, and they're lovely books, are all people that God has blessed for their obedience, not because they've done a simple little technique, you know. This says, in everything give thanks, and it doesn't then say, because this is the quickest way to get your prayers answered. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It says, in everything give thanks. Why? Because it's his will that you should do it. And even if the thing still doesn't go right, you still must keep giving thanks because it's his will. In other words, this is a matter of sheer obedience to God. And if you really love the Lord, you will do what he asks you to do. In everything give thanks, this is his will. Really what this is saying is this, that if God gave you nothing else but eternal life, shouldn't you be forever grateful? Yeah? If God didn't bless you with anything else, but gave you that wonderful eternal life. Isn't that enough to keep your feet a-dancing for the rest of your life? Well, it ought to be. And if it isn't, then we've got a new place to go to. Okay, so can you see, both praise and thanksgiving show our love for the Lord, but they're also used to produce maturity, holiness, and stability. And we will find ourselves often in a tensional situation, but we've got to resolve it for God all the time. But this has We've got to learn that this type of praise and thanksgiving has got to come from our hearts, you see. The heart is the key in the whole matter. God doesn't listen to our lips as much as he listens to our hearts. And what he wants us to do is so get our hearts trained on him that he sees that we are giving forth the praise and thanksgiving with him in mind and not with ourselves in mind. To show you about the heart. I wonder whether we could turn to two passages in the Gospels and go to Luke, first of all, in chapter 6. Luke 6. And just at the end of verse 45, it says this, For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaketh. Or, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. Now, you see, the reason you have to make a sacrifice of praise and a sacrifice of thanksgiving so often is because, frankly, your heart still isn't entirely in God's hands. But as you make the sacrifice, so God begins moving in your heart, you see. And giving this sacrifice of praise and giving the sacrifice of thanksgiving starts, as it were... Um, producing a softness and a pliability in your heart as far as God is concerned. But he wants the day where our hearts are so sold out to him that the praise issues forth because our heart is overflowing. The word abundance means a river overflowing its banks. We've got so much love, so much joy because we're preoccupied with him that it just overflows. And out of our mouth, it has to start flowing out, you see. And another passage in uh, Matthew 15, and I want to read from verse 7 because it covers 
the point of religion. Then we'll get on to the main scripture for this morning. Matthew 15, beginning verse 7, and here's Jesus talking to the religious Jews. They go to the temple three times a day. They pray seven times a day. And here's what Jesus says to them. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. I sometimes wonder how many churches in Great Britain the Lord Jesus Christ would say that in. We ministers are far too polite to say it. Jesus is so in love with his Father, he'll say it, you know. And he doesn't mind the consequences. And that's what he said to the Jews. Oh yes, you think you honour me, don't you? It's all from your mouth. And none of it is coming from your heart at all. This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, honoureth me with their lips. Their heart is far from me. I've been in some of our meetings where it's quite obvious people are thinking about other things. They're just uh, singing the choruses. Well, because that's how we do it in our church now. Their minds are wet, miles away. They're looking around saying, oh, uh, is she all right? You know? Or, uh, oh, I see uh, so-and-so's missing. Um, and they're going around like this, and they're singing at the same time. And God would say, that's hypocrisy. Are you there to praise me or not? In vain do they worship me. It's meaningless. Teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And then he goes on to talk about defilement, how it's what comes out of a man's mouth that defiles him. And I love verse 12. Then came his disciples, said unto him, Knowest thou uh, that the Pharisees were offended after they heard this saying? Oh Lord, you've offended the Pharisees. This could end in something disastrous, you know? And I find, by the way, some people say to me, Roger, you mustn't say this since you're offending certain people. The word of God is clear. We are to praise God with all our hearts. And where we see religion, we are to cast it from us, name it as religion and get rid of it. And stop trying to live this hypocritical type of life that so many people do. Verse 18. Right? Those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart. They defile the man. And he's saying the fact they've turned to religion shows they didn't really love me with all their hearts. They just wanted to do a nice religious exercise. And the way they praise me shows that that's what they wanted to do. You know? I fear for the day, if, if it should ever come, and I pray it won't come, that we have hangers-on in the fellowship. People who view us as their church now. You know? And they come along to church. Uh, oh yes, every Sunday I go along to church. Fine. If that is your attitude towards fellowship, Really, please, go and find another place, you know, who will accept you on that basis. We are people who really want to move on with Jesus, no matter what the cost is. We do not want religious hangers-on, you know. May God challenge your heart. May he challenge my heart. Lord, how much of my praise really comes forth from the abundance of my heart? People who are religious are just dead wood. They're coming along to satisfy a religious feeling inside of themselves but they're not coming to meet with their Saviour. They're not coming to hear the voice of their Master who will challenge their hearts. And it's useless and vain. Out of the heart, uh, verse 19, for out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. There it is. But the great thing is with us, we have a new heart now within us. And it's from that new heart that our praise and thanksgiving starts issuing forth. 
What we have to do is to make sure that this heart is kept with the flow of the Spirit coming through it, you know, so that it's always open to God, always pliable as far as the Lord is concerned, so that the evil thoughts are totally rejected and suppressed. And the technique, as it were, that the Bible says we should use is this technique of making melody in your heart. God has given us music. God has given us singing. And he wants Christians to be the most musical bunch of people you've ever seen. Right? So that you outdo the Welsh by far. Okay? I always remember hearing my father when he got up in the morning singing as he shaved his face. You see? Law, 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 law. Like this. What God says is that should be the experience of every Christian in their hearts. The moment your heart starts losing its melody is the time that Satan will come and harden the heart within you. All right, let's turn to the passage then. Ephesians in chapter 5. It's really verse 19, but we'll go from verse 18. Now, this is full of good stuff. Ephesians 5. Eighteen and verse 19. All right, here it is. But be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the rest of the, ver the, rest of the chapter tells you the results of being filled with the Spirit. And it deals mainly with marriage relationships. It's funny, isn't it, that the marriage relationship, the love of the husband to the wife and the submission of the wife to the husband follows on the filling of the Spirit. If only we would see that, if we're all filled with the Spirit, it would be a major aid in wonderful marriages, you know, to be filled with the Spirit all day long. But immediately it says, be filled with the Spirit, in verse 19, speaking, very important that, speaking to yourselves, that's one another, in psalms and hymns and, spirit, so, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now this means that all day long we are making melody in our hearts, no matter where we are, and when we come into the fellowship situation, we simply put it into words. But the melody has been flowing all day long anyway. And suddenly we come together and the singing comes out in power in the meetings. But notice what it says. There are three categories given here. And I just want to go through these three categories. Oh. All right? Because <coughs> Paul put them there for a reason. And I always have to laugh when I get to these categories. The first one is psalms. The second one is hymns. And the third one is spiritual songs. The reason he lists these, by the way, is because the people in Ephesus, many of them have been saved from the temple, where there was a firm difference between psalms and hymns. And so he says, well, in Christianity, there's also a difference between the two. Although, by the way, in Christianity, there is quite a bit of overlap in these things. Now, if you go to most ministers in most churches and say they're talking about this passage passage, you'll always hear the same sermon come out. And it always says this. Now, psalms are songs which are sung without accompaniment. Have you heard that? Yes, you must have heard it. If you've been around in evangelical circles for very long, you must have heard that, right? Psalms are songs which are sung without musical accompaniment, 
And hymns are songs which are sung with instruments. There we are. And the majority of Christians who know their Bibles think that that is the case. What a pity. It just isn't true, you know. And I always have to laugh because the word psalms in Greek is the word psalmoi. Uh, and the word psalmoi actually means twanging. <laughs> That's actually its literal meaning. Twanging. Now, isn't it funny? And it's the noise made, have you heard of the word onomatopoeia? An onomatopoeic word is a word that sounds like the thing. You see, like bang or crash or whatever it is. Well, this is a type of word and it's the twanging of a harp or lyre. You see, a twanging of a harp or lyre. So the very uh, type of song that should be unaccompanied according to them actually means a twanging. Funny that, isn't it? You can't be more wrong than that. That's not it. And this, by the way, the twanging uh, refers to the accompaniment. Actually, both of these were sometimes sung accompanied and sometimes they weren't uh, accompanied. Do you see? It, it depended, as I said last week, that we will sing some choruses without musical accompaniment, please Lord, and sometimes we will sing them with musical accompaniment. And we're learning how to be sensitive in the spirit over this musical backing. It's not always right to have someone thumping out, you know, and God's having to teach us sensitivity. So that's not the, me the difference between psalms and hymns then. So if that's not the meaning, what is the meaning? Well, it's quite lovely. Hymns are any songs which uh, refer to God's person and his works. You see? A, a, a hymn is any song that concentrates on God's person and his works. You see, for thou art great and doest wondrous things. That's a hymn, believe it or not. You see, even though it's not found in the local hymn book, it's still a hymn. It concentrates on God. A psalm concentrates on our response to God. I was glad, very glad, when they said to me, shall we go to the house of the Lord today? You see, there's a difference. So some of our choruses, you'll notice, absolutely concentrate on him. And these tend to be uh, the more worshipful choruses, generally speaking. The others are the exciting ones, you know. They show our response to him. The one we were singing earlier. For thou, O Lord, art high or great on the earth, or whatever the words well, I've forgotten them for the moment. Thou art high above all gods. That's actually a hymn because it's referring to God's person. Spiritual songs refer to any other songs, including singing in the spirit. You see? So we get spiritual songs. They're songs issuing forth from the Holy Spirit. And there's one man in a fellowship up north, and do you know, he starts singing, and a new song comes out every time he starts singing. And it's most lovely, beautiful words, and they all rhyme. That's a beautiful spiritual song. So you've got these three categories that are given there. And we're told psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. In other words, sometimes praise God for who he is. Sometimes tell him how you're responding to him. But let it all flow anyway. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart. In your heart. It's got to be from the heart that this comes. And that's why we all feel offended when we're singing a song like uh, uh, His Name is Wonderful 
And you know full well some people are not singing it from their hearts. They're not thinking about God at all. They're just singing it with their voice. It's quite, quite useless. When I was in Sweden just a few weeks ago, I was sandwiched, as it were, forgive the term, sandwiched in between an operatic singer. And this church had laid on this singer specially to enhance the meetings that I was taking. They obviously thought they needed it. <laughs> and um, before I spoke, this operatic singer stood up and she sang. Lovely. The singing was lovely. But do you know, my spirit went bzzz, straight down, clank on the earth. She was singing lovely words. I assume they're in Swedish, but I got a quick translation. Lovely words, but I don't even know whether she was born again. She wasn't singing to God. She was singing to the congregation. And then I ministered to God. And then afterwards, I was sandwiched in. She came and sang to the congregation again, you know? And so many people afterwards said, Roger, why did we have to have that opera singer? You're thinking I'd arranged arranged it, you see. And they had discerned the difference between the two. One, I was ministering from my heart unto God. She was singing from her lips to the congregation. We must never, ever, ever get into that situation. And I rather love the story of the conductor some years ago who was conducting an opera singer who was singing, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he was, she was singing away, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he finally stopped and said, stop it. And he put his baton down. He said, do you know that your Redeemer liveth? And she was a born-again Christian. She said, yes. He said, then why on earth don't you sing it and tell us that you know he liveth? You know? He said, come on. It's reality and it's truth. Let it come out. And she sang and they say there wasn't a dry eye in the auditorium because she was singing now with her mind concentrating on God, with God flowing from her heart. Fantastic. And that's what we've got to do. And that's why it's so lovely when we have a solo from someone in the midst. Someone who isn't coming to say, oh, look at me, by the way, don't I have a nice voice? You know, don't you think that voice of the vibrato got it out quite well? Don't you think my music teacher would have been really thrilled? But someone who comes to the front and they're saying, I so love the Lord, and my voice may not be very good, but I just want to sing this because it's what I want to say about my experience to God. And they sing it and they move us to tears, not because their voice is so wonderful, but because of the sheer dedication in their heart that comes out. This melody has got to come from our hearts. Our singing must. Otherwise, our meetings will be as flat as pancakes and God is sitting there saying, when are they going to love me? with all of their hearts, you see? But one word sticks out if you've read this verse, verse 19. Look what it says. Speaking to yourselves. And have you ever wondered why it says speaking there, not singing to yourselves? Speaking to yourselves. Well, you see, when you speak to someone, you communicate with them. And the point Paul is making here is this. When you sing these songs, You've got to communicate the words to others around. Don't just sing them. You've got to communicate. That's why I got us to stand and sing. I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. Do you remember I got everyone to stand up? And I said, now keep your eyes open. And you started singing, I'm a new creation. I'm a brand new man. I was speaking in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to these people, reminding them that the words that I was saying were true. And when we sing choruses, the words count. That's why the word speaking is used here. 
the headmaster of the school that I attended was very hot on this. And there was one hymn that we sang. I can't remember which hymn it was. And if you remember it, see me afterwards, please, because Ros and I were racking our brains earlier today. But it had a little phrase. I think it was this. Uh, Faint and dreary, lone and weary. Or was it lone and dreary, faint and weary? Yes. And he always used to say, we were first years, he said, now, sometimes we sing this hymn. Could you turn to the hymn? And he used to... uh, we used to turn to it. He said, now, he said, you'll notice several words here. He said, now, I can believe that Jesus was alone. I can believe he was weary. I can believe he was faint. But I never, ever will believe that he was ever dreary. <laughs> and he said, so the first rule you'll learn on singing hymns in our school is, we don't sing that word. And whenever we sang that song, do you know, it was uh, lone and faint and weary. You know, that's how we used to sing it. It was our favorite hymn. It used to cause us endless am- amusement. You know, we used to love it. Total silence used to go over the whole hall, except for the piano who, that continued, you see. And yet, after all these years, I found that my headmaster was right. You can't sing words that are wrong and meaningless. And we must beware, there are some choruses and s- songs around, especially today, and do you know, they're heretical. And I hear Christians singing them, whoa, clapping their hands, and they're singing all this heresy out of their mouths. That does something, you know. The words have meaning, and Satan uses those words. We've got to be very careful about this. And I've noticed, by the way, in our fellowship, these are the courses that don't catch on. I've noticed that. They just don't get off the ground. And I praise God constantly for that. The words are important. And never must choruses become chants and mindless repetition, as some people use them, to sort of get them stirred up, all emotional like this. That's not it. If the praise and worship isn't going through to God, it shouldn't be coming out at all. You'd be better sitting in total silence where you are. All right, and as if Paul wants to emphasize that, you'll find that's exactly what he says in Colossians, where we have a similar verse to this, in Colossians 3.16... In Colossians 3:16, and have you ever wondered why you get these two things mentioned in one verse? Verse 16: Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then he says, teaching and and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And all that verse is one verse. Let the word of Christ dwell in your hearts and teach and admonish one another in these songs. And that's why when we sing certain hymns like um, let's lift our hearts to the glorious King of Kings, which of course we don't know, but which is a wonderful one, I must teach it sometime, We are speaking that to one another. We're saying to one another, life may have been difficult today, so let's lift our hearts to the glorious King of Kings. Or we say, break forth into joy, O my soul. And you speak to your soul. Soul, what are you doing? Why are you cast down within me? And that's what you're doing. You're teaching and admonishing. And this has got to flow from our hearts. Melody from our hearts. If this is right in the fellowship, then God will be able to move in the midst of a fellowship. But you can have the best teaching, 
You can have the most wonderful, powerful spiritual gifts. You can have healings every week. But if people's hearts are not pliable on a minute-to-minute basis before the Lord, you're going to miss out in the long run. That's why in our fellowship we concentrate on the praise and the worship. We're going to have dancing, hallelujah, in the streets. Yes, we will. We will have feet a-tapping. Yes, because he is great and greatly to be praised. Right, having dealt with that, I just want to finish by mentioning in passing two other things that I think every fellowship should be aiming for. Two things which in the past we have had in our fellowship, but which seem to come and go a bit. There are two other things through which we show our love to the Lord. Well, the four things, of course, are praise, thanksgiving. The third one is silence. And the fourth one is worship. Now, the reason I'm covering these in passing is because they need special studies by themselves. Silence is so important when you're dealing with God. And though you may not have silence in every meeting, periods of silence... It should be true in the life of a fellowship that there are periods of total silence because God likes to speak in our hearts through the still, small voice. And very often it means that we have to quieten our hearts before him, concentrate on him so that he can minister in our hearts. Trouble is, it's very hard, silence. Silence needs us to be so in tune with the Lord and in tune with one another. You know? And you can't force this. This is something that the whole body has to come into. Going into it is as hard as coming out of it. When you come out of it, there are always some who feel it should go on for another three hours. You know? And yet, sometimes the law says, no, it's now the end of the silence. There's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. We must ask the Lord to make us sensitive. But make sure that you don't try and force anyone's hand. It's terribly easy to stand up and say, I think we should have a time of silence. And really, the people's hearts aren't there at that point. But we've got to ask God to bring us to this place so that there is praise, there is thanksgiving, but there are also times of silence when God moves. I don't mean the embarrassing times of silence, you know, when someone uh, sort of uh, says, shall we be silent, we all sit there. Or no one can think of anything to say, so we just sit there. And this is the type of time when everyone who's a bit embarrassed comes in with a chorus. And you get the type of meetings where it's chorus, 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 chorus. And God's not in it. I mean the type of silence where the Holy Spirit broods on a meeting and where he's ministering. Now we've got to ask God to bring that into the midst of our fellowship. And the next thing is worship. Worship is the highest. It is the jewel as far as fellowship life is concerned. And there are very few fellowships that have ever achieved the place of worship. Because worship needs every person in the midst to have awe and the fear of God in his heart or her heart. That is what produces worship. When all of us suddenly realize how great he is, how magnificent, how wonderful, and so we find that there's only one place we have to get on our faces before God in utter adoration. Again, you can't say to a group, Let's worship, because their hearts have got to have the awe and the fear of the Lord. You remember, don't you, in the Old Testament, whenever God appeared, the people dropped as dead men to the feet of Jesus. 
and there was an angel with a resuscitation unit standing by. Do you remember that? And always the first thing he has to do is bring you around and stand you up again. Oh, I long to see it in the body of Jesus Christ. And when it comes, don't be surprised when you'll see people kneeling, crying, prostrate on the ground. They will not be prostrate before you. And you may find it a bit embarrassing. God doesn't find it at all embarrassing. He loves it. We've been there. We've tasted. And now God has given many of us the desire to see it again. Will I ever forget that evening when after an hour with most people prostrate on their faces over in the hall across the way, when they got up, the whole floor sparkled with their tears that had been dropping from the eyes and the light caught every one. That evening I went home and I knew that God had been high and lifted up in the midst. Beloved, we've got a long way to go, but we're going to get there. We begin how? Well, by making melody in our hearts, by worshipping the Lord in our daily lives, and then when we come together, it will flow automatically from that. Hallelujah. Amen.